people can do amazing things. Walk on the moon, contain a nuclear meltdown. And what do they have in common? They're not in it alone. Creativity, talent, genius, it's all a team sport. We have seen what we thought was unseeable. It was a step in a direction that nobody had taken before. I'm Gabriella Cowperthwaite, host of Teamistry. It's an original podcast from Atlassian, all about the chemistry of teams. Check it out on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by longtime healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated, and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Naked Scientist with me, Kat Arney. This week we have a special science Q&A show. You ask the questions and we answer them. On the panel today we have Naked Scientist Ginny Smith, who's interested in psychology and how the brain works. My background's in genetics, cell biology, that kind of stuff. We have Carolyn Crawford, who's a space scientist ready to answer your questions about the cosmos. And Chris Smith is a medical doctor and microbiologist. Thank you, Kat. And on the way, the answers to the following questions. Why muscles get stiff when we exercise? Should you listen to music when you're trying to revise, or will it put you off? And do you sneeze in your sleep? The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Our first question today comes from Paul in London. Hi, Paul. Hi there. So what is your question for us? Okay, my question is, I'll be 45 this Friday. I'd like to know how far I will have travelled since I was born to get where I'll be. Well, firstly, very happy birthday for this week. And Carolyn, you're our our woman with the maths and and, uh, space science. What do you reckon? Well, there are a number of things you can take into account here, Paul. I mean, the first one, of course, is that the Earth is spinning around the sun at about 30 kilometres per second. And then the sun's also wheeling around the galaxy at about another 220 kilometres per second. So if you added all that up together over about 45 years, we reckon you've travelled at least 350 billion kilometres. And if that's not enough, just another thing to add into the mix, our galaxy also doesn't stay still. We're moving towards the local Andromeda galaxy. It's at like 400,000 kilometres an hour. That's about over 500 billion kilometres in your lifetime. Wow. But you didn't realise you were an interstellar traveller. Well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Paul. Thank you. Now we have Amelia on the phone with a question. Hi, Amelia. Hello. Hello. What is your question for us? My question is, how do sting nettles sting? Have you been stung recently? Yes. Oh no, where did you get stung? In the bottom of my garden. (laughs) In the bottom? Or in the bottom of your garden? Yes. (laughs) So, stinging nettles in, in Amelia's garden, Chris. What was going on when she got stung? The answer is the stinging nettles have... All over their leaves, lots of tiny needles. And if you look at the leaves and stems of a stinging nettle closely or use a magnifying glass, you'll see these tiny 
little things sticking out of the leaf surface and they are hollow and they're made of silica, the same stuff that sand is made from. And inside them is a liquid and that liquid is histamine and another liquid called serotonin and some other chemicals that the plant makes. And those little straws of glass or sand are very, very fragile. And when you touch or brush past the leaf, they get into your skin, scratch the skin, and then they discharge or release some of the histamine and the serotonin that's inside them into the surface layers of your skin. And those two chemicals are really irritant. They actually stimulate your nervous system and they stimulate the nerves that signal pain and itch in the skin. And this causes an inflammatory reaction, and that's why you get a little bump where the sting was. The reason the stinging nettles do it, of course, is to warn you off of treading on them or eating them in future, because if you get a painful contact with a stinging nettle, you know to watch out for them in future and avoid them. And so they've evolved to do that as a means of defence. Does that all make sense to you, Amelia? Yeah. Did you do anything like rubber dock leaf on your stings? Uh, no. No, did you just, just style it out and uh, and deal with the pain? Yeah. I was going to ask the rest of the people in the studio, do, do people believe the dock leaf thing? Because you're meant to rub dock leaves on stings. Do, do you think that helps? Is there any science behind that? I have done it before. Whether it's actually any better than rubbing any old leaf, because we know that if you've hurt yourself, rubbing it makes you feel better. And that's because you're stimulating all the other nerves that are going on. You're stimulating your touch sensors. And that kind of overpowers that feeling of pain. That's why if you've bumped your knee, you give it a rub. But I don't actually know if there's anything in the chemistry of dock leaves that makes them better. I, th- I reckon it's no, probably I the rubbing. Think I, I think you're right. There's something called the gate theory of pain that uh, Melzack and Wall came up with about 40, 50 years ago. And just as you say, Ginny, that when you stimulate large, low threshold mechanoreceptors, which in plain English are the nerve cells that you stimulate when you brush skin gently, when you look at what they do in the spinal cord, as well as telling your spinal cord, my skin is being brushed gently, they turn off the cells in the spinal cord that signal pain. And therefore, that's why when you experience pain, you rub something better because you're effectively using your own inbuilt anaesthetic system to turn it off. Absolutely fascinating. Uh, Thanks very much for your question, Amelia. We have a question that has come in for Ginny. This is from James Bentley, and he has asked us, why do crabs walk sideways? Well, the simple answer is because it's the way their knees bend. So if you think about (laughs) our knees, they bend forwards and that allows us to take a step forwards. Whereas crabs, their legs are on the side and their knees bend outwards so they can only move sideways. The more interesting answer is taking into account, of course, evolution. We've evolved to walk forwards. Most animals walk forwards because you can see where you're going better. But for crabs, there must be a reason why it's okay for them to walk sideways. They spend a lot of their life buried under the sand and they've developed these kind of long, flat bodies that make it very easy for them to sort of squiggle under the sand and hide there. And having the legs on the side fits in with that elongated shape. And they also don't really need to walk that fast. They're scavengers. They don't chase prey very much. So actually, they don't need to be great runners. And being able to hide has been more useful for them. Does the crab nebula move sideways? No. Well, it moves outwards in every direction very, very fast. That, that fits with another question we had in from Rich Baker, who asked, how can two galaxies collide in an expanding universe? This is a very good question. And it's one that comes up quite often because, as you say, we know the whole universe is expanding. And what you have to be clear here, it's that space is expanding 
and it's pulling the galaxies along for the ride. However, if two galaxies are close enough to each other, that gravity that they feel, you know, they feel each other's gravity, that overrides the motion of the expanding space so they can move through the space towards each other. So, for example, our galaxy and the Andromeda galaxy, our nearest neighbouring galaxy, are so close, they're only about two and a half million light years apart. Oh, uh, hardly any distance oh, yeah. at all. Well, believe me, it isn't in space terms. <laughs> that's near enough that they're feeling each other's gravity and they're getting pulled towards each other in about six billion years, we're going to collide. So it's just if galaxies are close enough that their mutual gravity dominates over the expansion of space, that's when you get them colliding. That is a great question. Chris, well, I think it's time to hear a little bit about some of the news that we've got going on this week. What have you got for us? Well, Kat, there's a very interesting story which has uh, come out from researchers at Ohio State University who have made this oil water separating sieve, which I read with great intrigue because I thought, well, that come in useful when you're cooking Sunday dinner because instead of pouring your gravy, which has got oil and fat mixed together into one of those separating funnels, actually you could just pour it through one a sieve made of this material that they've come up with and it would just separate it for you. So how, um, does, the, how does this work then? Come on. Well, what they were doing was, uh, first of all, looking at how they could make self-cleaning mirrors, in fact. They were trying to make a surface that would just shed water or shed oil. And uh, then they discovered that you could actually apply this to a thin stainless steel mesh and it would do the same thing. The way it works is, first of all, they spray onto a stainless steel mesh some particles, of effectively sand, it's silica, nanoparticles, and that makes the surface a bit bumpy. They then layer on top of that a polymer which is called PDDA because it's got a horribly long unpronounceable name. But embedded in that polymer are some surfactant molecules. And surfactants are chemicals that break the surface tension of water. They make water much less sticky. And the effect of this is that the water will very happily spread out across the surface, but oil hates the surface, so it forms little droplets. And if you make a mesh of this material and hold it over a jug at a slight angle, you can then pour a mixture of water and oil through the sieve. The water leaches straight through and goes into the pot underneath, but the oil runs off sideways, so you get two pots, one full of oil and one full of water. It's absolutely stunning. You're clearly making much classier gravy than I am because I just opened the Bisto. <laughs> other other <laughs> gravies are available. Juices. Well, we're vegetarians. Okay. But you can use sort of, you could use, you could still use meat juices. <laughs> How can you make gravy with no meat juice? It's fantastic. Vegetarians. Um, we've got another question on the phones now. We have a question from Stephen, I believe. Hi, Stephen. Hello. Hi. What is your question for us? Well, on a hot day, you see people fanning themselves with a fan. And I wondered whether the energy of waving the fan cancels out the cooling effect of the air. Isn't it better to sit still? Oh, that is a great question. So you're actually heating yourself up by fanning yourself. Chris yeah. uh, or Ginny or, or Carolyn, anyone ideas? I have used fans before. It certainly feels like it's cooling you down. I imagine it's helping your sweat to evaporate, which is going to cause a cooling effect. I mean, if you're holding one of those huge fans when you're fanning a queen, you know, those giant ones, <laughs> I imagine that takes quite a lot of energy. But if it's a little sort of handheld fold-out thing, I wouldn't have thought it takes too much energy to fan. There is going to be an energy cost to moving the fan, as you say. Muscles are only about 20% efficient, so of all the energy you, you use actually moving the fan, 80% of it is actually being wasted and turning into heat, exactly as Stephen's suggesting. So you've actually got to fan a bit harder and sweat a bit more to compensate for the fanning effect, but it will still cool you down because of evaporation. So I think there is still a net benefit, Stephen, but it's going to be a modest one. Absolutely fascinating stuff. Great question here from Tad Davison, and he wants to know, why is it that comets often look green in photos, but not when looked at with the naked eye? Carolyn, what do you think? 
Again, this is such a good question. You look at these wonderful pictures in coffee table astronomy books and you have these multicoloured swirls, nebulae, comets. They all look fantastically coloured. But when you look at them through the telescope with your naked eye, it's often disappointing. They're sort of grey and whitish. And the problem is not with the comet or the nebula, it's with your eye because the part of the eye that detects faint, diffuse substances, these are the rods. They're round the outside of your eye. They're not colour sensitive. It's the cones at the centre of your eye that are colour sensitive. And so if you can see something faint and fuzzy through a telescope, you won't be picking up the colour. And that's why, whereas a camera, of course, doesn't have any of those problems, it picks up all the colours that there are. So it's to do with your eye rather than anything to do with the comet. Great question. I have noticed that myself when um, you, you look at the night sky and if you look out of the corner of your eye, the stars are much brighter and uh, then you look at them and they seem to almost disappear, especially if it's a star that's a little bit dim in the first place and you, you can see the star and you look at it and then it's gone. Mm. And that's, that's why, because you're then focusing it on the centre of your retina where you've got these cones, which are, you know, they're, they're pretty good at seeing text on a bright screen, but they're not very good at seeing dark things. Yep, you're exactly right. You are listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Katani, and today I'm joined by Ginny Smith, Carolyn Crawford and Chris Smith, and we're answering your science questions. Still to come, we'll be finding out how to make clear ice cubes and whether you can smell happiness. Now, the next question I wanted to ask was to you, Ginny. We've had a question in from Nick Watts, and he says... I was watching my daughter doing some revision while she was listening to music at the same time on her headphones. It occurred to me maybe she shouldn't do both as her brain will only be concentrating more on the music, which she likes, rather than the subject she's revising, which she doesn't. Is there any science to back this up? Well, the studies are quite mixed on this and it depends a lot on what kind of music it is, what kind of person his daughter is and what she's studying. So there's a lot of evidence that listening to some music... So what you're saying, she studies music, it's quite important to be able to listen to music. <laughs> For a start, there's something called the Mozart effect where the original finding was that listening to some Mozart before you did a task boosted performance on that task. It's now been debunked. It's not just Mozart. It works with pop music, rock music, pretty much anything. Basically, listening to some music gets you hyped up. It puts you in the right mindset to do lots of different tasks and can help with concentration, memory, all sorts of things. But that's having it on before you start studying. When they've tested out people studying, doing memory tests with music on, most of the time, it does cause detrimental effects to their performance. Sometimes they even found that it's worse when you like the music. But as I say, it does vary from music to music. So music with lyrics, we think, is a lot worse than music without lyrics because your brain's kind of getting distracted by the words trying to follow along with them and therefore not concentrating on what you're reading. I have to say, I've just been working on writing a book and I've had this playlist that's kind of very minimalist electronic music. It's basically just repetitive bleeps and beats just quietly going on. And I found that's really helped me focus. It sort of shut out all the nonsense and, you know. I listen to Sigur Ross because they sing in a language that I don't understand. So again, I don't get distracted by the words. But the other thing is music can make boring things more fun. So if you're doing a boring, repetitive task, like data, running. Or data, <laughs> entry, data entry, something like that, then music actually can improve your performance because you don't get so bored. And if it's something that you're an expert at already then it can be beneficial. So surgeons often listen to music while performing operations. Best email I ever got to the Naked Scientist, right, it's this guy in Australia, and he wrote in and said, Dear Naked Scientists, I love listening to your programme on, on a podcast when I'm in the laboratory dissecting the prostate glands out of Drosophila. 
<laughs> so listen to the programme. But it's sort of what you're saying, isn't it? If there's something that is a repetitive motor task that you're really very good at, very practised at, but you just have to go through the, the nuts and bolts of it every time, then actually having something to occupy that part of your mind means that you're less likely to then get distracted I think and do something wrong. The best everyday example is driving. If you remember back to when you were first learning to change gears, the idea of having music on would have just been way too much. You're concentrating so hard on what you're doing. But once you've been driving for a year or so, it becomes completely natural and you can you can listen to music and things perfectly fine at the same time. But of course, the only sanctioned listening should be the Naked Scientists <laughs> on our podcast. And we have another caller on the phone. We have Daniel on the phone, I believe. Hi, Daniel. Hello, Kat. How are you? I'm good. What is your question for the Naked Scientists? Okay, so you work out and then your muscles cool down. After your muscles cool down, you tend to get stiff. What's causing that stiffness? Okay, Chris, what do you think is going on here? Well, I think that the way muscles work is that you have lots of contractile elements or contractile filaments inside a muscle cell. If you look at these down a microscope, what you see are long threads of one particular kind of material called actin, and they're linked up to another kind of material called myosin. And on the end of the myosin is this thing called a myosin head, and it's like a little ratchet or grappling hook. And the myosin crawls along the actin, making the muscle get shorter. And so every time you contract your muscle, you are pulling these two sets of contractile filaments against each other relative to each other. And after prolonged exercise, yes, there'll be some potentially some chemical injury to the muscle because of things like lactic acid, because when you exercise a muscle and it can't get enough blood quickly enough, then some of these byproducts build up, including lactic acid. But actually what you do to the muscle is you make some of those fibres tear or break down and become a little bit damaged. And this will release various inflammatory chemicals locally, and the muscle is well supplied with nerve fibres that signal pain and damage. So the presence of these inflammatory chemicals and the presence of damage to the muscle itself triggers a little bit of pain, it triggers a little bit of inflammation, and that in turn triggers a little bit of repair to make good. But the stiffness you experience the next day is because you have stretched all these various elements, and as a result, the repair going on is felt as pain, so that you know to be a bit more careful with the muscle while it's getting better the next day. It's excellent. Thank you very much. It's an honour, Dr. Smith. <laughs> I have I have a question related to this. So I find I like to do a lot of weightlifting, um, believe it or not. And I feel fine the day I do it and then the next day. But it's two days later. I can't like, you know, I can't sit down and get up properly. What's going on there? I think it's probably a similar thing. Most people, it's worn off by two days, though, Kat. I think you're just hopeless now. <laughs> <laughs> really there's, there's also what people call a runner's high, which is when you do exercise, you get this release of all these hormones in, from your brain, which make you feel really, really good. And some of those hormones actually also act as painkillers. So while you've still got those going around your body, they're acting as painkillers. It's not till that's worn off that suddenly you start sort of noticing how much the exercise actually hurt. So I stop feeling like Wonder Woman and then I can't put my bra on yeah okay <laughs> very good point there Ginny well let's take a brief break from all these questions for a minute or two and hear from you Ginny and your news story what's caught your eye in the world of science this week well I found a paper that was in psychological science that showed that if you smell the sweat of someone who's feeling happy it can actually make you feel happy as well 
Okay, I do not want to be smelling sweat. Um, what on earth is this about? How are they doing this? It's one of those studies that you kind of don't want to have signed up for. But they got some men, nine of them, to watch videos that made them feel either happy, neutral or fearful while they had sweat collecting pads taped under their arms. And then the poor researchers cut up these pads into little sections and gave them to various women to smell and measured various things in that, those women to see if their mood was influenced. Can the smell of a man's sweaty pits uh, <laughs> tell you whether he was happy or fearful? What's interesting is that we're not always that good at telling how we feel. So the researchers wanted to use a few different measures to see if they could detect even kind of subconscious happiness. So they taped some electrodes to the women's faces to measure which muscles they were moving. So they could actually measure really tiny facial movements that the women wouldn't necessarily know they were making they found that the women who were smelling the sweat of the happy men showed the sort of happy side of things. So they moved the muscle that you move when you smile. What does this actually tell us, though? Does it tell us that happiness is contagious by your smell? Well, it does seem to be, but only in some circumstances. So there were other ones where they were asked to rate how pleasant the sweat was and there was no correlation. So it's not that we find happy sweat more pleasant. So what they suggest is that these signals that you're getting from the happy sweat are sort of so subconscious that they don't work when you're asked to do anything that involves language processing. So whether you have to say whether you like something or not, it doesn't work. But with the kind of subconscious tests, it does work. Why? Oh, sorry. No, I can see your face. You, that Why would weird. we do this? What? So, it's um, just my sweat. <laughs> <laughs> Smell my pits. So we know that the olfactory nerves, the nose, is very closely linked with emotions, but not very closely linked with language. So that's why smells can evoke memories and feelings, but sometimes it's quite hard to put those into words. And people who lose their sense of smell often suffer from depression, but they're not always able to sort of say what they're feeling. So we think that, that there's this really kind of evolutionary ancient link with emotions that's hard for our kind of more modern language centres to explain. And it makes sense when you think of it evolutionarily because a lot of animals communicate with smell. We know that animals scent mark places to leave messages for other animals. So the theory is that that's kind of what we're doing here. And if you were a mother animal who suddenly saw something dangerous, you'd want to communicate that fear as quickly as possible to your cubs. And actually, maybe by smell would be faster than explaining to them that there's something dangerous around. Well, I've, I've just been to visit my parents and certainly both my dog and my dad were communicating by smell. <laughs> <laughs> it made me fearful. You are listening to The Naked Scientist Q&A show with me, Kat Arney, also with Ginny Smith, Carolyn Crawford and Chris Smith. And we're answering your science questions. Still to come, we will be finding out uh, about the 25th birthday of the Hubble Space Telescope. If you'd like to get your question into the programme, you can tweet at Naked Scientists or email chris at thenakedscientist.com. Facebook page operating as well. Good question there from uh, Chris, who we'll come to shortly perhaps. Uh, well, I'll tell everyone, you can have a think about this. Chris says, why do we have a natural sense of rhythm? Is there an evolutionary advantage to that? So we'll get our thinking caps on about that one. And now on the phones, we have Denny. Hi, Denny. Hello. Hello. What is your question? My question is, why don't we sneeze while we sleep? That is a great question. Do we sneeze when we're asleep or, or don't we, Chris? What's everyone? Who's, who in here sneezed in their sleep? Have you ever done that? I don't know. Not that I know of, no. Carolyn? 
I've always woken up if I sneeze while I'm sleeping. Oh, there you go. And that's the crucial answer, I reckon, because I have definitely done exactly that. I've woken myself up sneezing at night. I think, Denny, the answer to your question is that the majority of us wouldn't know if we did sneeze in our sleep and probably it barely rouses us. And so as a result, we we don't remember it. There's no reason why you shouldn't sneeze in your sleep. What's going on with a sneeze is that you have a circuit in your brain which detects movements or irritation of the lining in your nose. There's a lot of hairs there which, if tickled or plucked, will strongly stimulate this reflex. And they go back to your brain stem, which connects your spinal cord to the top part of your brain, where all of the centres which control breathing, coughing, blinking the amount of saliva and eyes and tear, uh, eye secretions and tears you make, all of those things go on there and sneezing and hiccuping is coordinated there as well. All of these functions are preserved in, in your sleep. You can cough in your sleep. You guard your airway in your sleep to stop yourself choking. So there's no reason why you shouldn't sneeze in your sleep. I just suspect that most people don't remember that they've done it. But I've never heard anyone sneezing in their sleep. I have seen, or sorry, not seen, I've heard people coughing in their sleep. I was going to say, how big's your sample size, yeah, you Denny? Need, <laughs> you need to sleep with some more people, find out. <laughs> I'm not going to answer that question. Okay? <laughs> Denny, good to have you with us. Let's return to that question from Chris on our Facebook page. Uh, Chris, can you re- read out what the question was again? Yeah, so he says, why do we have a sense of rhythm? Is there an evolutionary advantage to this? I'm a musician and I think that there is definitely something inbuilt to it. What's going on, Ginny? Well, so this is a really interesting thing because it's really difficult to study when the evolution of rhythm and dancing and music and things like that happened because they don't leave behind fossils like tools do. But we think that it's quite a quite an old um, thing to, to move together. And there's a lot of evidence that if a group of people move together, they become bonded, they interact better they like each other more so the theory is that dancing and singing and all of those sort of movement and music things have evolved to help bond tribes together i saw a really um great study it was about chanting it was about how groups that chant together whether it's football chants or religious chants or anything that it's people start to move together they start to breathe together it's a sort of bonding thing it's the same reason why armies still practice marching up and down, even though armies don't march anywhere anymore. They're just they, flying they drones like Korea. it's an Nintendo. <laughs> they do that a lot in Korea. So, but by getting them to march up and down, they all become sort of part of one bigger thing. But if you think about it, timing is so critical for everything that, that the human body does. I mean, your heart has a beat. If I can't form rhythms of speech and breathing patterns and make things like my vocal cords open and close at the right rate, if I can't decode sounds at the right rate, then I can't actually interact with the world. So timing is absolutely critical. Speaking of kind of timing, we've got a question for Carolyn here. Um, we have, Well, two related questions. So Tim Snowden asks, what would happen if the Earth suddenly stopped orbiting and rotating? He says, I read we're orbiting the sun at 67,000 miles an hour, rotating at 25,000 miles an hour. What would happen if we suddenly stopped? And then also a question from Rod Chapman, who says, how safe is our planet from losing orbit? The first one that you asked is, what would happen if the Earth stopped orbiting? First, let's just look at why the Earth orbits the sun. It's because it's just gradually being pulled around by the gravity of the sun. You know, if the sun wasn't there, the Earth would just continue on in a straight line in space. But because the sun's gravity is there, it just keeps being deflected all the time. So the minute it stops orbiting, there's nothing left for it to do other than to fall straight into the sun. And it doesn't take long to do this. Sort of back of the envelope calculation suggests it's, 
you know, something over two months, less than 100 days anyway, it's just going to fall straight towards the sun. It's going to get hotter as it does. So- oh, yeah, you- Ginny's <laughs> looking very dismayed at this news. I'm afraid it's not good news. You know, she likes the hot bit, but she doesn't like the fact she's only got 100 days to enjoy it. Uh, she won't like this hot bit. It gets too hot for life pretty rapidly. And very rapidly, we kind of cross the orbit of Venus that moves us out of this habitable zone, the safe zone for life around the sun. And by the time you're you're well into the orbit of Mercury, you're going to start getting temperatures on the surface, thousands of degrees. You're going to get rock melting. And when you get really close to the sun, of course, you've got tidal forces. So the, the front end of the Earth feels a different gravity from the back end of the Earth. So it's going to get stretched and squeezed and kind of the whole Earth will disintegrate. So that's really what would happen if the Earth stops orbiting. But just, you know, just to stress, this is a thought experiment. So we come on to the last question about how safe is our planet from losing that orbit. I mean, if you're going to change the Earth's orbit in that way, you have to change its momentum. And that's not easy to do. You have to kind of apply a huge external force or you've got to lose a big chunk of the Earth's mass. And there is no easy way. I mean, even an asteroid collision would not lose enough mass to stop the Earth from its orbit. So our planet is really safe from losing orbit. We talked about the Earth stopping orbiting, the fact it's not going to happen. The other thing that was mentioned was what happens if the Earth stops rotating. And again, thought experiment, it's not going to happen, but imagine a great big finger comes out of the sky and just breaks the Earth like that. And does National it, lottery. That's right. <laughs> For you. You know, so imagine it's a really sudden movement. It's going to be a big shot. Yeah, everything's going to carry on moving sideways. We've all got momentum and the surface of the Earth is spinning. Well, it depends where you are in latitude, but probably where we are, it's probably about 1,000 kilometres an hour. So everything's going to continue moving sideways at about 1,000 kilometres an hour. So we would all go flying. Anything loose, not tethered to the ground, would go flying. Not just that, though. All the oceans would would slosh around and go sideways at 1,000 kilometres an hour. And the air... So all the atmosphere would carry on going and just like scrape everything off. So it starts getting very serious if that happens. We did an experiment recently where you spin a boiled egg or a raw egg. And if you spin the raw egg and stop it and then let go again, it starts spinning again because of the momentum of the fluid inside. If our imaginary finger stopped the earth and then let it go again, would the fluid in the, the atmosphere, the core and the oceans, would that be enough to get it going again? It would start it moving again, but it'd probably still peter out in the long run. I mean, an interesting side effect, if you stop the Earth spinning, of course, you're going to stop perhaps that dynamo effect that drives the Earth's um, magnetosphere, all the Earth's magnetic field. So the Earth would stop having a magnetic field as well if you managed to stop all those internal motions. Doesn't sound like a very attractive prospect. No. And the other thing is your day and night would last a whole year. Because instead of, you know, when your day is, depends on when the Earth rotates into view of the sun, it would just have to be when that part of the Earth came into view of the sun as you followed the orbit. So you've got a six-month day, a six-month night. I mean, just think what that would do to your climate changes and the wind patterns. Roy Orbison said uh, I could drive all night. It could be a long journey then, wouldn't it? It could be a very long journey, yes. But I think given that the uh, the likelihood of these things happening is very small, I'm going to put them lower down the list of things that keep me awake at night. Yeah, (laughs) let us stress these, these are not things that we expect to happen at all. But they're still interesting to just sort of contemplate a bit. So we heard from Linda and she says, what weight-bearing exercise is good for osteoporosis apart from speed walking? It's interesting that Carolyn's been talking about uh, space because, of course, one of the big risks of going into space and experiencing microgravity or weightlessness 
is that you don't have any loading of your bones and astronauts come home with a bone age equivalent to someone in their 70s and 80s unless they do something about it. Because we have evolved to live on Earth and experience the shocks that gravity throws at us. Every time you get out of bed, every time you stand up from a chair, when you step off a curb, when you get in and out of the bath, you are applying a lot of stress vertically along your bones. And your bones have various chemical receptors in them that can detect that stress. And in response to that stress, they secrete various factors that trigger the bone to grow more. And in this way, the more loading you have on your bones, the more you do, the more dense your bones are going to be. Now, the reason that Linda's interested in osteoporosis, I suspect, and she's female, is that women are at a disadvantage over men because the other thing that makes bones stay strong is the female hormone or or the male male and female hormones, but women rely on oestrogen to keep their bones strong. And once you go beyond the age of the menopause, about age 50, when the ovaries run out of eggs and you stop producing any more eggs and therefore you reduce your oestrogen level your bones are at greater risk of thinning. And that's why people are advised to take regular load-bearing exercise, not to the extent that you damage your joints or damage your bones by severe exercise, but enough to initiate this stimulus to grow. And this should keep your bones strong. So very, very severe exercise is not so good. Non-load-bearing exercise like swimming is less good, but regular walking is pretty good, especially if you're at risk of symptoms like osteoporosis. I know I am a big fan of weightlifting. I did hear that weightlifting was actually quite good, and I think there's almost women are very reluctant to even lift any weights at all. Anything that transfers more load through your skeleton is a good thing, but equally it's important to do things that are within your limits. And in fact, there's a a friend of ours who's been on this programme a number of times, Ken Poole, who I met at Addenbrooke's Hospital the other day, and he's, uh, he's now got a bone scanning technique where they can get their patients to hop on one leg a number of times a day and they can see the bone on the hopped leg getting denser just where they've hopped you can then get them to do a prescribed amount of exercise, <laughs> and, uh, which, which can include hopping because it's great load-bearing exercise, and you boost the bone density, and he's just about to publish that, or he just has published well, that. A hop, skip and a jump to uh, protect you from osteoporosis. But now, uh, Carolyn, I want to hear what you've got for us in the news this week. Well, yes, we had Paul celebrating his 45th birthday this week. Well, Paul, you share it with the Hubble Space Telescope. It's been a phenomenally successful telescope. The number of different things that we've discovered from it, you know, whether it's probing the atmospheres of other planets, for example. And yet when it was launched, we barely knew that there were planets around other stars. And now we're measuring what their atmosphere is made of. That's just one of the many things. It's played a clear, pivotal role in so many of these major discoveries. And it's because it's got this exquisite detail in its resolution. But the fact you can simultaneously see objects in ultraviolet, the visible and the infrared means you're seeing different processes going on. So it's still going and it could continue for another five years, funded up to 2020. So I think it's pretty successful. Happy birthday, Hubble. Happy birthday, Hubble. And as I'm someone who spends so much of my time explaining astronomy to the public, one of the greatest legacies are the amazing images that really have caught the public's imagination and have inspired, I think, so many people into an interest in astronomy has been phenomenal. So, yes, happy birthday, Hubble. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Kat Arney, and also Ginny Smith, Carolyn Crawford and Chris Smith, and we're answering your burning science questions. Still to come, we'll be finding out what causes that frisson of delight. Now, Kat, this is coming from Belinda. She says, my daughter has Angelman syndrome, 
Can chromosomes be repaired? So I presume that Angelman syndrome is a chromosomal problem. I was very excited to hear that there may be some tools about now to achieve this. First of all, what is Angelman syndrome? Angelman syndrome is a really fascinating genetic disorder. I mean, obviously, if you're a family that's affected by it, it's probably more distressing than fascinating. But it's something called an imprinted disorder. So normally we get one set of all our genes from mum, one set of genes from dad, and they're both pretty much the same. You know, both copies of the genes are working, the genes that make your your hair, your eye colour, all this kind of thing. Both copies, mum and dad's copy, are both working. With certain genes, there's about 100 genes in humans, it's either mum or dad's version that works depending on the gene and the other one is always switched off and it's always very stereotypical it's certain genes for example there's a particular growth factor and that's always dad's version that is on in your cells and particularly these genes seem to be relevant in development and very early life and angelman syndrome is a disorder where this process has gone wrong basically the copy that's meant to be on is not working and there's no backup Whereas for a, if you have two copies of every gene, you've got a backup. So there's been a lot of discussion with some of the new genetic technologies that are coming online, these things called gene editing techniques. Uh, there's a very famous one called CRISPR that listeners may have heard of, where you can actually directly tinker with the chromosomes, you can change bits in the DNA. The problem with something like Angelman syndrome that's a developmental disorder, it's something that really starts from when a baby is growing in the womb and continues on into life, It's going to be very hard, even if you could repair the DNA, it's debatable as to whether you could actually turn back the clock and turn back the problems that it's caused with the growing child. Oh, I see. So you're saying there are two problems. One is that you've not just got to deal with the what is causing this disorder, yeah. but then you've got to contend with the fact that you've got a, an accrued problem already exactly. under your belt. So if you have, say, a genetic problem that means you don't make insulin or, or an enzyme in your pancreas or an enzyme in your body or your stomach or something like that, maybe you could change the DNA in just those cells and you would start making the enzyme again and you would be well. But for a lot of the developmental disorders where they've started almost from the fertilised egg and through development, those kind of things are going to be hard to reverse. Although there are some intriguing examples we probably don't have time to talk about where there may be things that could help. But um, I think that gene editing for developmental disorders and those big chromosome disorders is going to be tough. Another question now, and we've had this one in from John Blinker. Hello, Naked Scientists. I'd like to know why every allergy season I get really, really sleepy and there's nothing I can do about it. I understand that might have something to do with histamine, but I don't understand that and I wonder if you guys can explain it to me. Thanks very much. Love your show. Love you too, John. Uh, but what do you reckon, Chris? It's a difficult one, this, isn't it? Because there's a number of things going on here. I know for a fact that when I get a very blocked up nose and claggy throat because of allergy I don't sleep very well and so I think that part of this is that we don't get a good night's sleep because you're continuously tossing and turning and sort of clearing your throat and trying to blow your nose and so on even when you're asleep you're still being disturbed in your sleep so you're not getting restful sleep and I think that's part of the equation the other thing is that how do people manage an allergy problem will they take antihistamines because most of that allergy response is the release of histamine in your mucous membranes eyes nose 
other parts of your body. And the histamine then produces all the symptoms. It causes the itchiness because it, it winds up the nerve fibres that supply that part of the body. It also causes blood vessels to open up and so-called dilate and become leaky. So you get swelling of the tissue. And this causes your nose to become all puffy. And when you take antihistamines, these are molecules that look like histamine but can't activate the receptors that histamine normally goes on to. So they block up the histamine effect. Unfortunately, your brain also uses histamine to talk between one set of nerve cells and another. And histamine plays a really important role in arousal and awakening. And if you block the action of histamine in the brain, then you feel very sleepy. And the best antihistamine drugs, unfortunately, tend to be the ones that also are not selective between what the brain needs to do with histamine and what the rest of the body needs to do with histamine. There are antihistamine drugs that can exclude themselves from the brain, but they're not really as good. So by treating your hay fever or your allergies with an antihistamine, you're actually also sending yourself off to sleep. And I think some of the problem is probably going to be down to that. We have a question in from Helen Dreyer, who wants to know this. My question is, what physiology takes place in the body when you get that little frisson of delight, in other words, an emotion, like watching an exquisite dance or hearing a superlative voice that you get down your spine for a split second? Well, this is a weird one because those feelings are normally associated with fear, that kind of hair standing on end, cold shivers down your spine. And we understand why we get those when we're afraid, because... Um, your hair standing on end in animals would make them look bigger and scarier. And the shiver down your spine and those kind of tingles you feel are the release of adrenaline in your body. And adrenaline helps you prepare to either fight off the attacker or run away from it. So why do we get those feelings when we hear a, a beautiful singer or something like that? Well, scientists aren't entirely sure. One theory is that it's something unexpected can cause the same response. And that's because often unexpected things could be dangerous. So it's a good idea to sort of prepare yourself in case that unexpected thing is danger. But when we know we're not in a dangerous situation, we can actually reinterpret those bodily feelings as a sort of feeling of pleasure. So when it's studied, these kind of tingles often come in music when there's a sudden change in the tempo or the volume that maybe you weren't expecting. And you get that kind of fear response, but you know you shouldn't be scared. So actually, it's quite enjoyable in the same way that riding a roller coaster or that kind of first brush of the hand with a potential um, romantic partner can get that same sort of feeling. It's it's fear, but not fear. And we actually quite enjoy it. And the frisson of excitement. Does everyone get that? Only when I'm listening to this show. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, we've got another question. In, uh, this is from Kevin. Hello. I was wondering if the naked scientists had a reasonably straightforward way of making clear ice, um, such as you get served in pubs and restaurants. Um, I can only make opaque ice in my freezer. So what's the way? Thank you. This is really getting to the important questions here at the end of the show. Chris, how do we make ice I like in the pub? I having a cocktail party and I'm looking forward to my invitation if I, <laughs> if I can solve this one for you. The answer to why ice is not clear, first of all, helps you to understand what you need to have clear ice. Snow is ice, but it of course looks white. But ice on a pond is transparent. Why the difference? Well, if you look at the difference between snow and ice on a pond, snow particles are lots of tiny ice crystals the crystal that you see on the surface of a pond that you can see through is almost a single crystal 
of ice. If you have lots of tiny crystals, when light goes into the crystals, then it gets reflected and it gets bounced about all over the place and all of the different colours of light come back towards you and that's why actually it looks white because when you mix all those colours together, you get white light. So when you have an ice cube that's crazed, which is not clear... The reason it's not clear is because there are lots of little either fractures in the ice cube or, more commonly, lots of little crystals that have all formed to produce one giant ice cube. How then do you end up with a single ice cube that's a single crystal, which is what you need in order to not disrupt the path of the light like snow does so it's clear? You need to do what's called nucleate, the formation of the ice cube, from one position only. And in fact, you might not believe it, but when you're making a jet engine, you need to do exactly the same thing. Because when you make the metal parts of the engine, the strength is in growing your engine parts as one single metal crystal. So you pour molten metal into a mould and then you drop in or you initiate one tiny form of a crystal into one place and the whole thing then crystallises following the same crystal structure. So what a pub will do, or someone who's got an ice-making machine, usually you've got a stainless steel tube or something which will conduct heat really well. You make that cold. You have a central core which is also cooled. And this way you've got lots of surface area in contact with the ice. You drop the temperature really fast, but it's going to start the freezing process around that central cooling probe, and then the crystal will grow out from there towards the margins, the edge, and therefore you're more likely to have a single crystal and therefore more likely to have nice clear ice. So this is why the ice cubes in pub drinks are those kind of, they're sort of circular shaped. They've got the whole hole in the middle. Yeah, because that way you've got as much contact of the thing that can take the energy away from the water, the metal, as possible, and this drops the temperature nice and quick, and that's how you make ice cubes fast. But a byproduct of that is you generally get them starting the freezing process in one place. They nucleate from one place, you get one crystal, nice clear ice. So Kevin's answer is basically buy an ice maker no, just buy or a buy a pub. Buy a pub, yeah. Yeah, that's there you go. One. That's your, your solution. You are listening to The Naked Scientists. I'm Kat Arney. And if you do have any questions for us for future shows, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can tweet at Naked Scientists or just pop them on our Facebook page. Just time for a quick question here from Michael Higgins. He wants to know why are people left-handed? He says, I'm left-handed. It's my understanding that a small percentage of the population is left rather than right-handed. Chris, what do you reckon? Why are people southpaws? Well, 90% of the population are right-handed and 10% therefore left-handed. And there is some evidence that this runs in families. If you look at families that have left-handers in them, you can model this and, and show that there is some evidence that there is a genetic influence. But researchers have tried very hard using some really powerful genetic techniques and they have not yet found any evidence of a gene that causes handedness. So we think, if anything, it's probably a cluster of genes that work in a certain way rather than an individual gene that either makes you left-handed or not. It it probably biases the likelihood of you becoming left-handed rather than absolutely determining left-handedness. What actually is left-handedness? Well, or right-handedness equally. Well, if you look at the brain of a human being, you'll see that it's very asymmetrical. The left-hand side of the brain is actually differently developed than the right-hand side. And, in fact, we know that language function maps onto the left-hand side of the brain in the majority of the population. That makes your hemisphere dominant on that side and because the left hand side of the brain controls the right hand side of the body and vice versa you end up with your right hand being your dominant hand because it's being controlled by your dominant hemisphere why it should have happened like that we don't know but it's 
almost certainly something to do with the evolution of language. And really interestingly, if you look back in history, even at cave people from 50 to 100,000 years ago, researchers at the University of Montpellier in France have done this, you can show that they almost certainly were equally handed in the same way we are. The evidence for their study was they went to a primary school and they gave schoolchildren a blowpipe and said to them, blow some paint onto a wall using your hand as a stencil. And you can get the picture. You hold the blowpipe in one hand, you blow hard, use your other hand up against the wall as a stencil. What do you get? Well, if you do this with the schoolchildren, you find about 90% of the hands that you get on the wall are left hands. Why? Because you're holding the blowpipe with your dominant right hand because it's easier to control it and get the picture you want. If you look at real cave paintings where cavemen have done exactly the same thing, you see the same ratio. So we're pretty happy that cave people who were living tens of thousands of years ago also had this brain asymmetry, also had this handedness, and this is probably going hand in hand, excuse the pun, with the evolution of language. That is it for this week, I'm afraid. Thanks very much to our answerers. That's Ginny Smith, Carolyn Crawford, Chris Smith. Thanks very much to Georgia Mills for production. Join us next time when we'll be delving into the world of video games. What do they do to your brain? Are they really addictive? And can we use the time people spend playing them to solve scientific puzzles too? The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the STFC and the EPSRC. I'm Kat Arney and thank you for listening.